Amen. As you're finding your seat, the oldest group of freshwater kids is going to make their way out of the room this morning. And as they're finding their seat, you can take your copy of God's Word and you can turn it to Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, as we address today the danger of comfort. The danger of comfort. That's going to be page 786 in a pew Bible if you've got one of those close to you. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. Our mission as a church is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So if I haven't met you yet this morning, I would love you. I would love to, to meet you before you leave for the day. Habakkuk chapter 2. The last couple times that I've been on an airplane have not been enjoyable experiences. Some of you know me well enough to know that I don't like to be in cramped situations where I feel like I don't have anywhere to go, and as a result, I always get on an airplane and I walk through the first-class cabin where they've got plenty of legroom and they've got pillows waiting for them, and by the time I'm getting on, they're half-sauced because they're on their third glass of wine by that point, and then I make my way into the regular people part of the plane only to walk into um, a place where you're sharing your arm rests and you don't have enough foot space and you're bumping elbows with the person next to you and it's just not an enjoyable time. The last time that I flew just a couple weeks ago, I'm not joking about this, I'm trying to watch a movie and the guy in front of me puts his seat back as far as it can go so you know how it is. I mean, it's literally inches in front of your face and I can smell his head. I can, I'm not exaggerating. I can smell the lotion or the shampoo or whatever it was that he put on his head. And I know how annoying that is for me. So then I'm thinking, and this is right after takeoff, by the way. So then I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? Do I put my seat all the way back? Because then I can escape him a little bit. But then I'm doing the same thing to the person behind me. So um, what do I do? I thought to myself, do I, do I just sit here and smell this guy's head for the next two and a half hours? And the answer was yes, I did. I sat there and I smelled his head for for the next two and a half hours. I can count the freckles on his bald spot is how close he was to me. The girl next to me is sleeping with her mouth open. She's drooling on herself. And I'm just thinking to myself, is it really worth booking the cheapest airplane ticket that you can find when this is the stuff that you have to, to put up with? Are the consequences of traveling cheap, are they worth it? And that's kind of the question that we have about a lot of different situations in life. Every decision that we make, every choice that we make, every habit that we pick up, every word that comes out of our mouth has a consequence. It brings with it some type of a repercussion. Well, what I want to talk with you about this morning are the consequences of us choosing to live an overly comfortable life. The consequences of us choosing to live an overly comfortable life. Now, some of you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, look, what's wrong with living a comfortable life? There's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. That's an okay thing to do. And you know what? You're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily. But our text teaches us this morning that there is something wrong with it if our desire for comfort and our desire for safety and our desire for security begins to trump our desire to see God glorified. And the fear that I have is that many of us are so stuck in the pursuit of an easy life, you know, a life with enough money and a life with no conflict and no sickness and no pain and no difficulty, a life that has plenty of friends on Facebook and it has plenty of followers on Instagram. My fear is that the pursuit of all of that can greatly discourage us from stepping out on faith or it can greatly discourage us from maybe choosing to follow Christ in the first place. 
The danger of being too comfortable is it can take our eyes off of Jesus altogether. Now, where do we see that in the Bible? Well, let me just kind of take a minute and we'll review what we've been working through here at Freshwater for the last several weeks and we'll kind of see how this builds up to this point in our scriptures. We're in this series right now where we're working our way through the book of Habakkuk. We've called this series, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith. That's taken directly from chapter 2, verse 4, probably the most famous and well-known verse in the entire book. But just to review, Habakkuk is a minor prophet whom God is using in a mighty way. He's prophesying about 600 years before Jesus would be born, and he's prophesying to the people of the nation of Judah. So King Josiah, you'll remember, was a great king that God used to bring about some absolutely incredible reforms for the people of Judah. But when he dies, the nation enters this kind of downward spiral where it's just beginning to crumble politically and socially, and we could even say religiously. And so when he passes away, many of his reforms are reversed, sin is rampant, holiness among the people is absent, and Habakkuk is standing up before God, and he's asking God, God, how long are you going to allow all this sin to take root and really exist within your nation? So that first week, we saw that God answers, and God says, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the enemy nation of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, and they're going to very soon march through the the nation of Judah, and they're going to destroy that country, and they're going to punish those people. Habakkuk says, God, how can you do that? The Babylonians are more wicked than we are. At which God says what? God says, Habakkuk, you need to remember, buddy, that I am God, and I can do whatever I want. I can use whoever I want to punish whomever I want. But also in that response that God gives, God begins to mock the Babylonians the exact nation that he's going to use to punish the people of Judah. So we saw last week the first part of God mocking the Babylonians when we talked about the danger of greed and how the greed of the Babylonians was so intense that they're willing to do whatever it takes to heap up land and treasure and gold for themselves in life. Whenever we come back next, that was in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2, by the week. Next week, we're going to see the danger of ambition in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. The week after that, we're going to see the danger of influence in verses 15 through 17. The week after that, we're going to see the danger of stuff and materialism, which I know none of us suffer with. But that's going to be verses 18 through 20. This week, the picture that God gives us, though, of the Babylonians is one in which they are a people who will do whatever they have to do to keep themselves from being stretched in life, to keep themselves from being forced to grow, to essentially keep themselves from having to do something that they're not good at or that they don't naturally have an inclination to do. They are a people who are known for building up walls around themselves so that they never have to think about and address the issues and the problems that surrounded with. And in their story, I see so much of their characteristics that today resonate in every single church. I mean, consider this. Our natural inclination is to what? It's to care about ourselves more than we care about others. It's to never allow ourselves to be found in a spiritually uncomfortable situation. We don't like those, do we? It's to keep difficult people and difficult situations and difficult ministries at arm's length. It's to essentially do everything we can to ensure that our life is easy and safe, and comfortable. That's the life that most of us want as Christ followers. So I'm going to be up front this morning about exactly what my goal is. My goal this morning is to get you to do something that you've never done before. So after we look at the text, I'm going to give you a list of several different options for you, and they're all going to be um, applied to you maybe a different 
a little bit differently, and I'm going to try to get you to do something that is going to make you uncomfortable. Maybe do something that you've never done before in your life. But before we do that, we're going to study the text that God has given us. We're going to be studying verses 9 through 11 of Habakkuk chapter 2, and we'll see by the end of these three verses, we're going to see three consequences of living a life that is overly comfortable. If you're doing the fill-in thing in your outline, you're about to have the first blank filled. I'll go ahead and give you that first consequence now. Here it is. It is shame. It is shame. Because look with me at verse 9 first, and then we'll pick up in verse 10 and look at the first half of it as well. Verse 9 says, woe to him. And remember, every one of these mocks is introduced by woe to him. So that's why we've got that outline like that over the next several weeks. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. Stop right there. You see in verse 9 that the ultimate desire of the Babylonians, these people that God is condemning, you see what their desire is. It is to protect themselves. It's to be comfortable, isn't it? I mean, they get evil gain for their house so that they can do what? They can set their nest on high. It's safe from harm. Imagine a bird that makes its nest as high up in the tree or as high up on the cliffside as it possibly can. Why? Because it knows that even with the rain and even with the wind, that's the safest place to keep it from predators. The predators are going to have a harder time reaching that nest that is perched up at the top of an oak tree when compared to if it was built on the ground. It's not difficult to see that. And we might even be willing to ask, you know, what's wrong with that? I mean, like if we take that and we apply it to us today, what's technically wrong with that? What's wrong with people who do whatever they can to protect their families? to protect their young, in this case, to protect an entire nation. All of us probably do that in some way. And the point is twofold. First, that they're doing it for some of the same reasons or the same motivations that we looked at last week. Remember when we talked about how they manipulated people or they're starting war or they're coveting or whatever. But for our purpose this morning, what it actually results in is not safety and it's not comfort. The actual result, according to the text, is shame. It's shame because look at what it says at the very beginning of verse 10. It says, you have devised shame for your house. The idea is that when we are willing to do whatever we have to do to protect ourselves, to move our nest a little bit higher up in the tree, to keep ourselves from being vulnerable, to make our lives comfortable, instead of accomplishing that, we're actually doing nothing more than bringing shame on the exact people that we're trying to protect. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, the sin of Achan comes to mind for me when I think about this. Do you all remember that account? It's found in Joshua chapter 7. I'll just kind of share it briefly, and then we'll move on. Here's how it goes. Joshua was a military commander that picked up for Moses after Moses passed away. And it was Joshua's job to lead the Israelites. Um, Remember, they've escaped slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them up toward the promised land. And the the problem is, though, that the promised land is occupied by a bunch of different people, and, and God uses Joshua really as a military commander to clear the promised land so the people can have the land back which rightfully belongs to them. And you see that happening in the book of Joshua. Well, in chapter 6 is a well-known account where the Israelites conquer the city of Jericho. And you might remember that account. Maybe you were uh, taught it as a child, but Jericho was this huge walled city that seemed impenetrable. So God tells the people what? Hey, you're going to circle the city um, for six days, and then on the seventh day you're all going to circle, and the the, the priests with the ram's horns and the trumpets, they're going to blow, and when they blow, everybody's going to shout, and the walls of the city are going to come crumbling down. 
And when the walls come crumbling down, you're going to march in, you're going to conquer the city. And that's actually exactly what happens. The problem is that God had told the people, don't take any of the treasure from the city. Don't steal anything. And that's when this guy named Achan, as he enters Jericho after the walls have crumbled, and as he sees the immense wealth, the Bible says, he coveted and he took. And he took gold and he took silver and he took what must have been a really fancy robe because the Bible uh, mentions it, so it must have been pretty cool. And he hid all of that in the ground under his tent. And we're told that God's heart burned with anger. And in chapter 7, Achan is being taken out among the people and he's being stoned and being killed for his sin. And there are a lot of things that that account teaches us, you know, one being to to obey the Lord and don't think that we can hide our sin from God. I mean, God knows everything. There's nothing that God is not aware of that is going on in your life right now. But it also teaches us that when we sin, there is a shame that falls upon not only us, but sometimes upon the people around us. You know, upon the people that we maybe are even trying to protect, the people that we're trying to provide for. That's true not only in the account of Achan in the book of Joshua, but God is saying that's true in the life of the Babylonians. You are willing to take advantage of others and to wreck nations and to start wars, literally, if it means that your nest would be moved just a little bit higher up in the tree. And I know that we've just kind of gotten into the text, but I have to ask, you know, is that you? Is that your life? Is that what you're willing to do? Are you willing to do absolutely whatever it takes to move your nest a little bit farther away from harm, to increase your 401k, to get a promotion at work, to bend the rules, to ignore the call for holiness? Are you so concerned with protecting yourself from harm that you are actually okay if other people are harmed? Well, if that's you, and maybe it is, this next consequence is going to be especially convicting for you. Let's see it now. That first consequence of living a life that is overly comfortable is the consequence of shame. Now, here's the second consequence. It is suffering. It's suffering. Because pick up with me, and let's look at the last half of verse 10. What does it say? We'll read all of verse 10, actually. It says, you have devised shame for your house. We've already looked at that, and look at what it says next. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. So the first part of verse 10, shame has fallen on your family or your people, your nation. Now, what did you do to bring on that shame? Here it is. You cut off many peoples. Now, what is this talking about? Is this talking about bad etiquette in traffic? Is that what he's referring to? What in the world? You know, what, what, what does it mean when he says that they've cut off many people? Who are the people being cut off? What are they being cut off from? Well, remember the context. God is mocking the pagan nation of the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans as they're known as. And although God is going to use that pagan nation to punish God's people of Judah, that does not mean that God is okay with everything that is going on in their lives. And as a matter of fact, God definitely is not pleased with their actions because they are waging war in a barbaric way. In the name of comfort and safety and ambition and remember making their nest safe from harm, they would kill. They would take the life of another individual. There was suffering that came as a result of their actions. And don't hear me wrong, the suffering is kind of two-pronged. It's happening in two ways. First, they're suffering for the people that they're conquering, that they're cutting off, right? That's clear. But second, by the life that they're living, they are inviting suffering into their own life. Have you ever considered that? The way that you live 
If you choose to live in a way that is rebelling against God, you are actually inviting suffering to come and to rest on your life. Look at that last phrase in verse 10 where it says, you have forfeited your life. Another way that that can be translated is to say that they are sinning against their own soul. That's why if you're reading out of the King James Version, that's exactly what it says. The idea is that there is a long-term retribution that is going to bring about the dissolution of the entire person. By our desire to protect ourselves, what we're actually doing is we're destroying ourselves and we're destroying others. Now, don't hear me wrong. There's nothing wrong with wanting a nice house. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with locking your front door at night. We do that. I think everybody, most of us do that, even though we didn't do that when I was a kid, but we do that now. There's nothing wrong with protecting those that you love. But you have to be careful that your concern for your own well-being never overtakes your desire to see God glorified, especially through people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it this way. There are lots of... um, reasons given for why people don't share their faith and share Jesus with people that they come in contact with. And I say that understanding that here at Freshwater, we've got people that are coming from a huge swath and variety of past religious experiences, every or denominations or whatever you want to call it. So you've got people coming from really no religious background or they might be coming from a, they were raised in a Methodist church or non-denominational or Baptist or Catholic or Pentecostal or Lutheran or whatever. And some churches and denominations may not emphasize it the way that we do. So just that here at Freshwater, just so you know, we believe the biblical picture is that it is the responsibility of every single Christ follower to share the gospel. Every single one. No exception to that. If you're a Christian, it's your responsibility. Now, that, it's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the ultra-charismatic extroverted people. It's not just their job. It's all of our jobs. Even when we say every morning, when I, every Sunday morning, when I say our mission is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ, a totally committed follower of Jesus Christ is someone that is sharing Jesus with other people. That's a totally committed follower of Jesus Christ. We're not ashamed about what we believe about that. But the reasons that people give for not doing that vary in a lot of different ways. Some people, they say they desire to do that, but they don't feel equipped. Other people aren't convinced about lostness, and they don't really see the need. You know, if somebody wants to live without Jesus, what does it matter to me? It's their choice. You know, I don't need to talk to them about that. Other people have kind of gotten over their salvation, that the gospel no longer excites them and no longer energizes them. There are other reasons, but you know what consistently rises to the top of most lists, and most of us realize this, It's a fear of the unknown. That's at least statistically the major reason that people don't share Jesus. What if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? What if they reject me? You know, what if they just outright tell me no and they think I'm a weirdo and every time I see them in the hallway at work, it's one of those awkward situations where how do we acknowledge each other? No, what if, what if they just don't like me from that point on? What if they don't want to be my friend anymore? Whatever. And by the way, I felt all of those. I personally have seen all of those in my heart and in my life, so it convicts my heart just the same as yours. But just think about that. What that is saying is that I am more concerned with my reputation and I am more concerned with not getting my feelings hurt than I am with that person escaping the clutches of hell. where there is eternal punishment. Eternal is what we believe. Where there's no grace, there's no joy, there's no happiness, and there is no end. 
I mean, the Babylonians are willing to send people to their physical grave in order to make a comfortable life for themselves. I find that too often we are willing to watch people march into the spiritual grave rather than for us to have to learn to do something that we've never done before. To maybe take a chance with that relationship that we have with them. You and I need to be people who are, care more about the suffering of the world than we care about our reputation, about our feelings, about our comfort. So that first consequence is shame. That second consequence is suffering. Now here's the third consequence. It's irony. It's irony. Now what is irony? I remember the picture of the dog. And there's a paper on the floor that is shredded. And there's just enough of the paper that you can see what the paper was before he shredded it. And it was the dog obedience training certificate. You know, that's irony. Right? Or the picture of the guy sitting at the stoplight and he's reading a book and he's waiting for the light to turn green and the title of the book is Focus. That's irony. Or the card that was given to the teacher. This is one of my favorites. And on the inside of the card it says, You're the best teacher ever. And your is spelled Y O U R, not Y O U apostrophe R E. You know? Or the poster promoting a specific well-known TV psychic medium who was going to be in the area and for a fee you could go and you could see them and you could meet them and you could learn from them until the event was canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. It's a great TV psychic medium. Well, the irony of this woe that God is placing on the Babylonians is that in their unending unquenchable desire to accumulate more and more stuff so that they're comfortable in their life and so that they're safe. The stuff that they're so set on accumulating is actually proclaiming their wickedness. Now, where do we see that? Well, look at verse 11 for the irony. It says, For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The picture there is that the material, the stuff, the things that make us comfortable. We see them as tools and items that make life easier or more manageable. God sees them as being the evidence that convicts you. Isn't that something? And they're talking. They're yapping back and forth. Maybe they're yapping to God. I don't know. The stone will cry out from the wall. This wall that is built to keep the bad people out and keep the good people in. This wall is crying out about your guilt. The beam of the home is doing the same. Today we might say, whatever it is that we're pursuing that is taking our eyes off of Jesus Christ, that is taking us away from his mission for our life, imagine that that thing, whether it be your job or your hobby or a person or whatever it might possibly be, imagine that it is having a discussion with God and it is telling God about how our pursuit of it is far more zealous than our pursuit of him. Really, what an amazing picture. So what we have seen this morning is God is condemning the Babylonians for their willingness to do whatever it takes to provide themselves for a life free from pressure, free from harm, essentially to have a comfortable life, to move their nest farther up the tree and away from predators. We saw these three consequences of an overly comfortable life. Their first, shame. That was verse 9 in the first half of verse 10. That second one was suffering in the second half of verse 10. And that third one was irony. And we see that in verse 
11. But I told you this morning, my goal was to make you move. My goal is to get you to do something that you've never done before. Not only just to, to show you how God is condemning and mocking this pagan nation of the Babylonians and is showing Habakkuk how their comfy, safe life was evidence of their rebellion against him. My goal really is to get us to recognize that our lives may be a lot more like theirs than we anticipated. Maybe than we wanted to admit. How much of your energy is spent in one way or another to... Move the nest higher up the tree, higher up on the cliffside to get it away from danger. And remember, that's not necessarily wrong. It's not inherently wrong to do that. But it is wrong if that desire is trumping our desire to see God glorified. If that desire is more important than for us to see the nations be glad because they've come to realize that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. So I'd like all of us to decide what our next step of obedience is. It's not going to be the same for all of us. It's not a cookie-cutter approach in any way, but I want you to be able to decide for yourself. What does it look like for you to become a little bit uncomfortable? So here's what I've got for you this morning. I have got, count them, 25 ways. 25 ways. Yes, I'm really going to do this. You didn't have anything to do. What are you going to do? You didn't have anything. 25 ways that we can maybe get in a little bit of an uncomfortable situation. Now, for those of you that are taking notes, I'm going to run through these quickly. There's no way that you're going to be able to write these down. I would just encourage each one of you to listen, and maybe there's just one that you could grab with your mind and say, that's the one. And then once you find that one, hopefully early on in the list, you can check out for the rest. Number one, share your faith. Share your faith with someone. Just tell them about Jesus. Number two, give. Give financially, give of your time, give till it hurts. Number three, go with us on an international disciple-making trip to London or Guatemala. Number four, try out a life group. Number five, volunteer to pray at your life group. Number six, volunteer to host a life group. Number seven, serve in freshwater kids. Before you do that, make sure you have some life insurance. Number eight, meet someone new today after we're done. Just go up and introduce yourself like a weirdo. Just do it. Meet someone new. Number nine, introduce yourself to your neighbors. Number 10, serve with us as we serve our community at Kids Fest coming up this Sunday, uh, this, this summer again, or the movie nights that we do at the Capitol Lawn, or labor for your neighbor. Number 11, invite someone new into your home. Number 12, this is a great one, adopt or foster a child. Number 13, lead your family in family worship. Number 14, go with us to help Paragon Church in Grinnell, Iowa. That's a disciple-making trip that we've got coming up in a couple weeks I'm going to tell you about later. Number 15, come and disciple our teenagers at the student gathering on Wednesday nights. Once again, life insurance is important. Number 16, volunteer to serve with us in a variety of thousand different capacities that go on on Sunday morning. Number 17, confess your sins publicly. You realize that's a biblical command? Confess your sins publicly. Maybe in your life group this week, confess to them your sins so that they can pray for you. Number 18, I can't even... Oh, yeah, I couldn't read it at first. Start reading and actually obeying the Bible. Number 19, if you're a woman, join a Wellspring group whenever that launches again. If you're a dude, join an Act Like Men group. Number 21, sponsor a child through Children's Hope Chest. Number 22, apologize and ask forgiveness for someone that you've sinned against in the past. Number 23, pray. Number 24, start singing. Number 25, place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe and count that he will forgive you and that he will walk with you and he will continue to draw you to 
himself. Now, all of those can be different for every one of us, but I bet there's one of those that would be a good next step of obedience that we're like just initially like, I don't know that I really want to do that. I don't know that I want that part of my life. That's a great indicator that that's probably that you should do something like that. So let me close with this and then we will be done. Breaking bad. Yes? Anybody seen that? If you haven't, okay, James Jackson has seen it. Good. Um, um, Some of you have watched that show. If not, just know that it was an incredibly popular show. I mean, even if you haven't, even if you never watched it, you've heard of it, and you know somebody that was completely addicted to it. One of of the most viewed TV shows in history. Um, If you haven't watched it and were planning on watching on Netflix, just know, too late. Spoilers ahead, and there's no way to escape. But the show is about a high school a chemistry teacher who finds out that he has cancer and he's going to die. That's what the show's about. And seeing the temporal nature of life and seeing how he has children and a wife that are going to need to be provided for, he decides, hey, I'll start producing methamphetamines. That's a good life choice, isn't it? It's a quick way to make a lot of money, but as you could expect, the occupation drags him into a life of crime and murder and all kinds of horrible stuff. And the question that the viewer is asking throughout the whole show is, how could this dude end up doing this? Like, how could a high school chemistry teacher involve themselves in such evil things? How does that work? Why would he do this? And by the way, the show has really skewed my view of public school teachers. I'm always thinking, are you cooking meth on the weekend? Like, is that what's happening? Not just joking, just making sure you're awake. I'm not really thinking that. I am thinking that about chemistry teachers. If you're a chemistry teacher, you are... I got my eye on you. But anyway, he's questioned the whole show. Why are you doing this? And his answer through the whole show is, I'm doing it for my family. You know, I'm doing it for my loved ones. I'm about to die. I don't have any money. I have a family to provide for. I am cooking meth and I'm destroying society for my family. Until you make it to the end. It's like the last episode or the second to last episode where the main character, Walter White, he speaks to his estranged wife. And he changes his tone from stating, I did it for you, I did it for my family, to saying, I did it for me. I did it for me. I did it because I liked it. I did it because it empowered me. I did it because I was good at it. I was proud of myself. And look, as we examine our lives and we see that we've created this little bubble of safety around us, this little spiritual bubble where we really know what we're good at, we know what we can do, and we know what we've never done and what we're really not interested in doing, where we're, we're kind of impenetrable and we've locked out the outside world and we're comfortable, we're, we're only concerned with us and our own. Don't allow yourself to make excuses about how we get into those situations. Don't allow yourself to think, well, it's just my busy life, you know? It's just that I'm introverted. It's just that I'm scared, It's just that I don't really know anything. Although all of those might be partially true. You know what the reality is? You know what the real reason is that we live these little comfortable lives that really look after ourselves and ourselves alone? It's because we love ourselves more than we love God. Now that's it. It's really that simple. We love ourselves more than we love God. That's why you and I disobey. That's why. That's why... Maybe many of us, I don't have any idea, we'll walk out of here just the same way as we walked in, not really any interest in obeying or being holy or pursuing Christ. It's because we love ourselves more than we love God and more than we love others. Now, you can leave here mad at me and you can say, what a jerk, how could he stand up in front of everybody and say that about not only himself but about us? And I'm completely okay with you leaving here thinking that. But I want you to know something. Um, I'm okay with it as long as you leave here repenting. 
Because the point and the hope is that you and I would see our rebellion and that we would beg God to have mercy on us. That we would beg God to give us the Holy Spirit, more of the Holy Spirit, to draw us, to work in us, so that we're no longer... We're no longer able to just live the same life that we've always lived up until this point. Now, that'll mean very different things for every single one of us. And I would never mean to imply that I know exactly what it looks like for you. But my prayer is that God uses this text and he uses what he's shown us in just these short three verses. He convicts these Babylonians to change us in so many different ways. Now, this is also the time in the service when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Um, And that's exactly what it is. When we pass the baskets, it's not a a point where we're hitting you up for money or anything like that. It is a point where many of us have decided to give toward the work of ministry here at Freshwater through regular tithes and offerings. It's an act of worship. We give to God not because we have to, because we're expecting something in return, but simply because he is gracious and good and he's already giving us He's already given us everything that we could ever possibly need. So there are four ways that we give. The first way is through the giving baskets. So here in just a second, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, um, after I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And as that music starts, the service hosts are going to pass the giving baskets where we can give our tithes and offerings. The second way that we can give is located in the foyer where we can drop our offering into the giving box. The third way is at the giving kiosk, which is also located in the foyer. And then the fourth way is online at freshwaterjc.com. So I will pray for us. After I pray, we will stand and we will sing together and the service host will pass the giving baskets. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father and Lord, I'm thankful, God, for all that you've done for us and all that you continue to do in our hearts and in our lives. And I'm grateful, Lord, that we just get to be your people, that we get to know what it looks like and what it feels like to be yours. And Lord, that is a good feeling to have. It's a good thing to know about. It's a good thing to be assured of. So Lord, my prayer is that as we stand and as we sing to you and as we give to you, my prayer is that you would be glorified, you'd be honored as we just proclaim to you how much you love us and how good you've been to us. Ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.